I'll go first, then Viola, then Anthony. I'm Will Howell. I'm Viola Duda. I'm Anthony Fowler, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. That's one of the harder things we have to plan, is even just saying that in the in, a, in an order where we're not interrupted. That's nice. We, we... You know, we do it fresh every time. <laughs> this isn't this isn't something canned off the shelf that we just import every no, time. No, no, no. It's not we very do that fresh. <laughs> yeah, and that turns out to be a big part of our preparation is figuring out uh, the order. <laughs> yeah. So, so we have talked a lot on this show about polarization, mostly in national politics. We've talked a lot about congressional polarization and presidents who are who are extreme and so forth. But we might want to know. Uh, what's going on at the state level, both because sometimes not a lot's happening at the national level and, and things are up to the states to actually implement policies, but also because the states are interesting and important in and of themselves. And also, there's a lot of interesting variation at the state level, and maybe by, by looking at state legislatures, uh, rather than just one Congress, we, we, you know, we might have 50 different states with their different state legislatures to learn about what are the features of states and their institutions that might correspond with better representation and better functioning government and more productivity and so forth. And so even though our producer says that polarization is a dead horse and we should stop talking about it, that seems interesting to me. I feel like we should go there. Sure, let's go there. Um, so, <laughs> um, yes, I think we've mentioned a little bit in our, uh, on our podcast that states seem to be polarizing from one another, but I don't think we really talked about what's happening within each particular state. So, uh, Will, uh, you talked to someone who wrote a lot on polarization, and in particular, he wrote something about polarization within states. I did. I talked to Nolan McCarty from... Uh, Princeton University. And a little over a decade ago, he wrote a paper on what's happening in state legislatures in terms of polarization trends with his often co-author Boris Shore from the University of Houston. And they've updated those data and have a new paper that just came out last year that looks at trends in state level polarization over about a 25 year period from 1996 to 2020. The paper just came out in the Journal of Political Institutions and Political Economy. They unearthed some really interesting trends. Anthony, did you say something? I got. It was not important. I wanted to know. It might have been important. It was not. It was not. I was just saying. I was just saying out loud the name of the journal, which in my mind I say J Pipe because that's the acronym. Doesn't that seem like? It does sound. It's J Pipe. Lots of acronyms are boring, but this one's kind of fun. Right? Yeah. You can sort of say it out loud. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, J Pipe. So at a high level they first have to collect all the roll call data across all the states. And then based upon how they vote, to the extent that conservatives are voting together, then then we can differentiate them from liberals who are voting differentially. And, and on the basis of just that, back out estimates on this liberal conservative scale about where they sit. But then there's this additional thing that you don't have to do when you're looking at Congress, which is to say, how do we compare people in one state to another? So the strategy that they employ is to leverage the survey of state legislators that was conducted, where they asked state legislators all across the country what their positions were on a host of policy items. And so in the context of the survey, for a subset of all the state legislators, in the context of the survey, you can make comparisons of directly of people in Rhode Island and people in California. And for those people, you also have roll call data. So you've got a score based upon their survey and a score based upon their roll call data. And so then the question is, how does one translate into the other? And and that they can do just by 
effectively estimating a slope and an intercept that talks about what that translation is from one score into the other, and then they apply that to all the legislators for whom they have roll call data, but they don't have survey responses. And having done that, they say, we can make meaningful comparisons across very different contexts about how liberal or conservative legislators are. Nola McCarty, thanks for joining the show. It's really great to be um, to have you on. We're going to talk about a paper that just came out in the Journal of Political Institutions and Political Economy called Two Decades of Polarization in American State Legislatures. And what you've done is collected all kinds of data that allow us to make sense of what's happening at the state level. So let's talk about the, the kind of big findings and they're, they're striking. In the 2011 paper, we found considerable rates of polarization between the two parties growing in almost every in almost every state. Ten more years of data collection and publish another paper ten years later, and we more or less find those same trends. What's different now than ten years ago is the few states that had not been polarizing are, are, now, pol are now polarizing. I, I think when we published the original paper, we declared the U.S. Ha House of Representatives close to the median most polarized legislative chamber in the country. Actually, the, the House of Representatives slid on that scale somewhat as many states have polarized much faster over the past decade than the House of Representatives. So, so the changes in the states, in many states, not all of them, but the changes in many states are actually quite, quite dramatic. And all states are getting into the game, it sounds like. Are all states getting into it equally? And how, to the extent that there are differences, to what do you ascribe those differences? Uh, no, they're actually quite large. They're actually quite large differences. I, I, I think the most striking differences are, are regional ones. The western part of the United States, so, you know, that includes states, not, not just California, Oregon, uh, Washington, but also Colorado, Arizona, you know, in those states, has the, by far the, the largest trend. California has been long an outlier, probably the most polarized in the country, reflecting, you know, very conservative Republicans paired with uh, extremely uh, liberal Democrats. Colorado is another kind of... Uh, I was just about to say, Colorado now takes top billing, right, as the most polarized state in the country. Any state with a Colorado Springs and a Boulder is, is going to be uh, is going to be polarized. The least polarized is usually are usually states like uh, Rhode Island or Delaware, where they're mostly Democratic chambers. There are only a couple of Republicans, and they tend they tend to vote often with the Democrats. The Northeast uh, is polarizing a little bit less because there's some kind of residual moderation in the Republican parties of those regions. But in the South, where you're getting like a Northeastern Democratic Party paired with a Southern Republican Party <laughs> across most of these states, you know, polarization uh, is actually quite striking. And when we say polarized, what, what specifically you mean is the difference between the median chamber Democrat and the median chamber Republican. And as you pointed out, the size of those two parties varies dramatically across states. When we think about the estimates that you're backing out on the levels of polarization, how ought we to think about its correlation with or its relationship to who the dominant party might be 
Is that something that we should be thinking about as, as both a contributor to or also just thinking about the significance of the level of polarization? A world in which there's 95% Democrats but only 5% Republicans, we may have huge levels of polarization, but it's neither here nor there, given that there's such one-party dominance in terms of the production of laws that come out of it. Yeah. So those are, those are good questions. Let me, let me uh, tackle a couple of them in, in sequence. So in our data, we find a modest, simple correlation between the parity of the chambers and, and, how, and how polarized they are, whether that persists, you know, taking into account uh, regional differences and, you know, time trends within states. It's a little bit, it's a little bit less clear. So, so that's the causal issue. There's a pure, how do you calculate polarization problem, you know, when you have 90% one party and 10%? 10% the, the other, in that, in that sense, you're comparing like the 55th percentile legislator with the 5th percentile legislator when you're comparing medians, and that's a very different calculation than when they're at parity and you're doing the 75th versus the 25th. So there, there's, there's a measurement issue. Our results tend to hold up whether we use means or medians. So, but I think ultimately where your question ended up, I think is the most important question. What does it do? What does it do to governance when the parties are lopsided in terms of their size. And I think the states are kind of different than national government. We, we tend to think that polarization has an impact on policymaking because of the supermajoritarian procedures in the Senate and the president's veto. The states are much more majoritarian I mean, than the national, go- in the national government. So their polarization within a state for policymaking may matter a whole lot less States may be much more responsive to majority party control, no matter how big that majority is, unlike in the, at, the national, at the national level. There's fewer, there, there are fewer uses of the filibuster. The veto rules are a little bit different in the state. So, so I think the states are a little bit more majoritarian, so that lopsidedness may matter less there. One thing that we do find in the updated paper is that, to this point, is that one of the things we find is that the states are more polarized against each other. You know, in our previous work, we were really focused on how much polarization there was internal to the state. Now we're looking at, like, how far apart are the states. So we're in a situation where the median legislator in a Republican state is much farther away from the median legislator in a Democratic state. There's reasonable parity between the number of Democratic and Republican states. Fewer states have divided government, so... The governors and the legislatures align. So we just have much more political polarization across states than we did before. And I think that has a lot of implications for some of the stuff we're seeing in policymaking at the states. Not so much policymaking getting gridlocked like we worry about at the national level, but policymaking being ungridlocked so that it moves in a rightward direction in Republican states and a leftward direction in Democratic states. In ways that doesn't reflect the interests of voters, right? That, that the Democrats in a Democratic state, the Democrats who are in the state legislature are more liberal than the typical Democrats in the state. And so you see a, a, a pull to the extremes on the left and vice versa on the, yeah, on the right. Yeah. There seems to be some debate about that now. So um, Jake Grumbach has a book arguing that, you know, these, these changes can't be explained by changes in voter preferences so that naturally this is an accountability failure. Doing some crude data analysis on my own, I have some sympathy for uh, the Grombach view. But on the other hand, uh, 
uh, Devin Coey and Chris Warshaw have a book which, you know, argues that, you know, the links between voter preferences and legislative outputs in the states are still are still pretty closely linked uh, to each other. One other descriptive fact about the findings on offer is we're accustomed to talking about rising levels of polarization at the federal level being disproportionately a function of more extreme shifts on the right. Republicans have become considerably more conservative than Democrats have become liberals, but you're not seeing that at this state level. If anything, you see an asymmetry that implicates Democrats. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a few things. I think there's a few things that are probably going on there. One of the things that people start to pay attention to is the extent to which politics is nationalized. Is nationalized. Voting in state elections are being driven by national level political issues. Pe- people's partisanship are stronger indications of how they vote in state and local elections, independently of how they vote in national elections. So, if you take that idea seriously, what it suggests is that you know, as things nationalize. States will move toward the national profile of their parties uh, at rates that depend on how far apart they were from their national parties when this process started. Clearest example, you know, Southern Southern Democrats are very far from their national party in the 70s, 80s, really far. Our data mostly started in the 90s, still kind of far in the 1990s. So they have to go. They got more to catch up. They have a long, they have a long way. They have a long way to go. So it could be a compositional effect that mostly what we're seeing are those states that are kind of, we'll just call them out of equilibrium, doing faster catch up than the states that were more closely aligned, you know, with the, with the national party. Uh, my guess is that part of what we see is that, you know, the Republican Party politics nationalized a little bit earlier. So Republican parties have been moving with the national party and in the Democratic Party, we've seen some catch up. So I think that's part of it. I don't think it's all of it. I think there are some areas where, you know, state legislators, Democratic state legislators are uh, demonstrably to the left uh, of the National Party on some environmental issues, uh, issues related to uh, LGBTQ rights, marijuana. Okay, so let's think or reflect a little bit on the implications of these findings And a place maybe to start is with governance at the state level. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about what you think is at stake, given these rising levels of polarization. Yeah. Well, I think to me, the most important and first order effect is that the policy that a voter faces will be increasingly dependent on what state they live in. Polarization at the national level has led Congress to tackle fewer and fewer big problems, creating new spaces for policymaking at the state level. And then this polarization across states, which I talked about, are going to lead states to adopt, you know, differential policies in different states. So now that could be good. I mean, there's a lot of old arguments about the value of federalism that says, you know, this is why we want federalism. We want people to have more local control of the policies, policy outcomes they face. But, you know, the, the, flip, the flip side, of course, is that, well, one, we have to address whether or not these policies that we're seeing are increasingly congruent or not, not just responsive, but congruent. That's hard to evaluate. And then the second is that there's, there's some things, you know, in the realm of rights that one obtains through national citizenship that should not have unequal application depending on where you, where you live. You know, are these 
policy changes really what the voters want. And even if they are, then it's presumably what the majority of voters want and, and how we protect, uh, you know, minorities and minority rights in a world in which majorities are increasingly tailoring local policy outcomes. Say something, if you would, about parties, both as contributors to these dynamics and as um, organizations that have to respond to changes in their composition. Yeah. So I think the polarization dynamics we see today, they're largely a reflection of the weaknesses of political parties as organizations. If, If you think about the most polarizing figures within the Republican Party, they're a set of individuals who refuse to vote for their party's candidate as Speaker of the House. <laughs> you can't say that they're good partisans. I mean, they are exploiting the weakness of the Republican Party to try to pull the Republican Party to the right. Uh, they're able to do that because there's a media environment that they can uh, insert themselves into without the intermediation of their party leaders. Kevin McCarthy cannot keep you know, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert off Fox News, even if he wanted to. And there's a social media environment which allows them to kind of obtain attention and generate resources in a way that's completely unintermediated by, by party leadership. And, and I could flip things around and talk about Ocasio-Cortez and, you know, the kind of left-wing members of the party who have the same, the, 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 the same, the same dynamics. So I, I think we're in a position where the increases in polarization we've seen, especially in recent years, uh, have to be attributed to kind of a weakness of political parties. And you think those dynamics are happening at the state level? And maybe to the extent that the state legislators are, are staging grounds for people to make a run on Congress, then what's happening at the state level is exacerbating those trends at the national level. Nolan, thanks for the conversation. All right. Thank you. Take care. So let's talk about the substantive findings. Uh, So one finding which was somewhat surprising, perhaps, is that we do have uh, a lot of polarization in the states. It's almost all the states have polarized over time, starting from the 90s, uh, in a a sense, mimicking what's going on at the national stage. So what do you make out of that? Yeah, I think it wasn't obvious that you would see this in all the states. And maybe it's worth even talking about some of the states that are kind of an exception. Rhode Island, for example, is an exception that we, that we mentioned earlier, where the Republicans in Rhode Island are pretty moderate. Presumably, if you had to guess what's going on there, you know, Rhode Island is a small state that's very solidly Democratic. There aren't very many Republicans in the legislature. I mean, the only way you could get elected as a, as a, as a moderate, as a, as a Republican in Rhode Island is by being pretty moderate. And their only chance of doing anything productive is to maybe let's find some way to compromise with the Democrats. And, you know, maybe we can shift policy around a little bit, but we have to, we have to, we can't be so extreme and just vote no on everything. We have to show that we can work with them. And maybe it's surprising that Rhode Island's almost the only state that's like that. Hawaii is a little bit like that too. The Republicans in Hawaii are pretty moderate. Louisiana kind of goes the other way where the Democrats in Louisiana are kind of, you know, more moderate in the other direction. So there's a few exceptions, but that story that I just told, you'd think would apply to more than just two or three states. So is it as clear as, as what you're saying? And then is it surpri- as surprising as what you're saying that we don't see that in other states? So so the story you were telling us is, okay, Rhode Island is uh, leaning one way. And we know that the representatives from the opposition party 
can't really you know take over it's just it's just almost impossible so hence they should be willing to compromise with the winning party and uh, and they should be voting yes on some moderate bills but that's sort of having a model of bills being moderate and and uh, you know let's say democrats willing to moderate a little bit to get the votes of those few republicans and republicans voting for those moderate bills because, you know, the opposition is not going to get them elected and at least they get more moderate bills. But an alternative story would be Democrats know that they can win right now, so they can put very extreme votes at very extreme policies up for vote. They don't need to compromise. And as a result, the Republicans uh, say no to everything. They say, well, you know, we are getting these crazy policies that why, why should we ever vote yes? So it's not obvious to me that... Like if you ask me as anti, take a state where one party has a huge advantage. Like they know that they would have to do something crazy in order to lose election. What's your prediction for the polarization in the state? I don't know. It's not obvious to me. No, it's a good question. And, and you're right. I mean, that is, it is, maybe it's surprising too. The, the Democrats in Rhode Island are scaled to be more moderate than the Democrats in lots of other states, even though Rhode Island is one of the most democratic states in the country. Maybe that is surprising because because the story that you're telling is there's a good job of describing Massachusetts and California and so forth and maybe Illinois that the Democrats more or less do what they want. The Republicans are upset about it, but there's not much they can do. They vote no on almost everything and you get lots of you get lots of polarization. And so you're right that 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 story also seems plausible and that seems to be the norm. There's another story which cuts the other way. It's a story that's associated with Francis Lee, who is. Nolan's colleague, which is that we ought to expect to see heightened levels of polarization precisely in those places where you have bare majorities held by one party or the other. And it's because, precisely because the majority party status is up for grabs in any given election, that then the willingness of one party to compromise with the other is undermined. And so there, that ought to exacerbate observed levels of disagreements between the parties. But there's not much evidence of that story in these data either. It is not at all clear that somehow those states where it's, you know, it's up for grabs, where it's tight, it isn't, it's not a one-party state that somehow trends in polarization have been increasing at a, at a faster clip, or even levels are greater there. I've never understood that story, and maybe people are going to get mad at me for saying this. I've read that book, Francis Lee's done a lot of valuable work on Congress. I, I've never understood that story in the following sense. It is not obvious to me that more polarization and more gridlock and more partisan behavior is good for you electorally. So the story is something the story is something like when you know that the control of the chamber is up for grabs, you have an incentive to be especially partisan because you're really fixated on winning the majority. But there's no evidence that especially partisan behavior by legislators is good for them in elections or is good for a party in elections. All of the evidence goes in the opposite direction, that you would win more votes if you were more moderate and if you showed, hey, we're the competent party that's willing to work with the other side. Now, it's, it's complicated, and, and Viola's been promising that she's going, to talk, she's going to talk to us about her paper on this topic um, at some point, so one we're going day. to come back to this topic. One day the paper will be finished. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that seems at, least like, at the very least like an incomplete story, that... Being extreme shouldn't make people want to vote for you. It should make make people think like, oh, they're they're the unreasonable ones. Now, of course, in most most states, both parties are the unreasonable ones. So then the voters are kind of uh, stuck in a bad place. But this doesn't complete the story, but I think it it adds to it, which is two other considerations. One is that if I'm in the minority, but 
but I have a chance of being in the majority tomorrow. And I know we're going to pass a policy on X. Better for me to hold out uh, until tomorrow in order to pass it, because I can presumably pass it more to my liking. That's one it's part of the story. And the other piece, I think, is that, well, if I vote for it today and we vote for your version today, that will strengthen your ability to hold on to seats. It'll be a win that you can run on in the upcoming election. And so better for me to not cooperate with you, to make your life more difficult and therefore and have, have less to run on in, in, in the upcoming election. It doesn't complete it. But I think those are some of the dynamics that, that Francis has in mind. But again, here we don't see clear evidence at the state level these dynamics are playing out. And at the state level, where you should really see it, because most of them are straight majoritarian basis, where if you're in the majority, you can actually do something if you have a bare majority in ways that in Congress, if you have a bare majority, that's not good enough. And so presumably that ought to accentuate those effects, but we don't see much evidence for them here. Can we talk, can we talk about Nebraska for a second? Oh, yes. <laughs> so Nebraska, Why do you want to talk about Nebraska? So Nebraska has a nonpartisan legislature. You, you, you cannot officially run as a Democrat or Republican. And officially, the parties don't have any... And I'm not an expert on the Nebraska. They also have a unicameral legislature, but that's a whole other thing. But they, they, the parties are unofficial in Nebraska. You can still, you know, the parties still are endorsing candidates and so forth, but the parties aren't on the ballots. And the organization of the legislature is not around parties. And they look at Nebraska, and one, Nebraska does look like a bit of an outlier in one sense. So there's still a lot of polarization in Nebraska in that the, peop, the, the legislators who are endorsed by the Democratic Party are well to the left of the legislators endorsed by the Republican Party, which you, would make sense if you were just, you know, if you're the party and you're deciding who you're going to, who you're going to informally call a member of your party. But there's not, there's not the same kind of cohesion between the parties. There's a lot more variation. And there's not, you know, if you look at the overall distribution of ideology in Nebraska, you don't get this crazy bimodal distribution like you see where the Democrats are way over here and the Republicans are way over here. You get more, you get a more, not to say it's exactly, but a more uniform distribution of ideology. You kind of get a full... It's nearly uniform. It's striking. So it's pretty interesting. And, and, and maybe that's something, something else that we should also talk about, which is polarization is just one measure that we care about. But... In addition, to the, in addition to the average distance between the parties, we might also care about something like the bimodality of the, of the, of the ideologies or how, you know, how much overlap is there and how is there kind of... I, I feel like I would rather be involved in policy debates in Nebraska than in California in that Nebraska is going to have a range of people. Yes, there's some extreme liberals and some extreme conservatives, but there's also a bunch of moderates and they're all participating in the discussion, whereas California is just extreme liberals yelling at extreme conservatives. I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, California also has a pretty large dispersion if you look at those pictures. So I don't think you should be unfairly picking on California. But I, I don't know whether we should make much of that finding because, you know, if you have weak parties, if parties are not so important in legislature, you are going to have different voting behavior, even if you have the same preferences. No, so like part of the reasons why we might see such a condensed uh, distribution within a party is that uh, there's some party discipline and the views might be equally dispersed, but the party discipline makes us vote the same way. I don't know. So, so, so yeah. yeah, that's a good point. You're right. I, I, I was talking earlier as if I was mistakenly speaking earlier as if we have some perfect measure of people's underlying preferences. And obviously there, 
estimated ideal points are some function of their preferences plus all the other stuff that's going on, including party whipping and so forth. But nevertheless, I still think my point stands that I would rather be involved in a, a legislative process where people are sort of freely doing what they want and there's a continuum of positions, whereas, you know, even if it's true, maybe there are some closet moderates in these other state legislatures, but we don't, we don't never know about it because they always vote party line and they do what their party leaders tell them to do. Presumably that's not as, you know, we're not having productive, interesting policy debate among a continuum of preferences. It's really the party leaders deciding what we're, what we're voting on and what we're doing. I'm with you on that. I actually think I, I am instinctively drawn to those states where the variance of the point estimates is really quite high. I mean, what you have in mind, I think, Anthony, is that where the variance is greater, the debate is richer. And that seems plausible. It'd be great to actually see evidence of that. I, I would hope that that's true. But notice, even if it's about party discipline, remember, it's hard to imagine that the party discipline, I mean, maybe it is, but working on the survey responses of legislators, which are integral to the estimation strategy that they're employing. So whereas the roll call votes are probably, you know, they're an expression of party discipline, the interests of their constituents and their own independent, you know, wishes and wants, some combination of at least those three things and, and maybe more, the survey responses that they're giving, which are, are which is the space that, that we're actually examining here, are one where it's presumably disproportionately about what the, the, the preferences are of each individual legislator, quite apart from party. Yes, it's hard for me to say to what extent the picture when I look at Nebraska is driven by the survey responses and to what extent is driven by the roll call votes, if I see this dispersion. I think, I think it's fair to say the picture is mostly driven by the roll call voting, but then the scaling of, right, the scaling of where, how you shift and stretch those, those plots relative to other states is driven by the NPAT responses. And so I think party discipline does affect the shape of those, of those distributions quite a bit. I mean, that's a whole other debate. People have a big fight over to what extent do these party, you know, do partisan structures and legislatures really matter? And maybe this isn't the most convincing evidence, but if you think that the comparison of Nebraska to these other states is, is, is you know, is, is telling you about that, then it suggests maybe that matters a lot, actually, that this party discipline stuff really does matter. Um, Can we talk about the Democrats versus the Republicans? Yeah, we should. I have heard um, a lot of practitioners express frustration. They've said, they've said things along the lines of, you know, the Democratic Party organization in my state will not let any candidate run if they don't agree with the party on X, Y, and Z. And, and sometimes that X, Y, and Z are things that are important to those. You know, so, you know, it could be like a rural farming district that used to have competitive elections, and now the Democratic Party either doesn't feel the candidate at all, or they feel the candidate who has the policy positions of the national party. And you don't see, you know, you don't see the pro-life Christian Democrat. You don't see them running in, in rural Missouri anymore. And, and then obviously in the South, I mean, we had a lot of those more moderate Democrats who eventually either retired or left or went away or became Republicans, um, you know, at the, at the very tail end of the Southern realignment. Does that fit your, is there something different about the way the parties are organizing themselves in states that explains this? One possibility that's uh, associated with Dan Hopkins and others has to do with the nationalization of our politics, that then Southern Democrats had a lot more catching up to do. And so they are sharply veering off to the left, whereas conservative Republicans were already 
reasonably well aligned with in the South with conservative Republicans nationwide, which then would help explain that asymmetry. But at the end of the day, I think I fell on the on the side of uh, who knows. So, you know, if you look at states, yes, on average, it seems that Democrats are polarizing more than Republicans, but that's on average. There are states in which, you know, they are, there are states in which the Republicans are polarizing more. And if you view, uh, you know, what's happening in Congress as just yet another observation, then, you know, it just fell on the side of Republicans <laughs> polarizing more. But if Congress is one observation and the states are you know, 99 different state legislatures, you know, that's, Congress is just, you know, two, two, two legislatures in Congress, two chambers, let's say. <laughs> yes. So, sorry. What, what? Maybe the weight of the evidence has swung totally in the other direction now. But, sure, yes, okay, that that's one interpretation, but again, there's a lot of variation and, and on average it's the Democrats, but... So maybe that's the variation interesting to to explore. Why is it that in some states it's Democrats, in some other states it's Republicans? What what's so different? But I think I, I I'm not I'm not completely sure that there's something specific about the national elections and national politics that singles out Republicans as as those polarizing uh, figures and something specific to local elections that singles out the Democrats. getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show you should check out. It's called Entitled. International lawyers Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsburg have traveled the world getting into the weeds of global human rights debates. On Entitled, they use that expertise to explore the stories and thorny questions around why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Subscribe to Entitled, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. So reading the paper, were you able to get a sense of whether the party that's polarizing more is the party that's, that tends to be privileged in a given state? So is it that in red states, is the Republicans who are polarizing more and in blue Democrats or vice versa? Or, or is this is there no pattern? I don't think so. I mean, we think there's a lot more polarization going on in the South, and we think a lot of it's coming from the Democrats, and the Democrats are not dominant in the South. I'll say I wish that they'd organized their findings around something like that more than around these regional distinctions. To look at levels of polarization in solidly red, solidly blue, and contested states. They don't do that in the paper. You can bat, you can look at them sort of state by state um, at the densities and try to offer an assessment, but it's not the organizing principle of the of the paper. And I don't know, is there is there is there a, a way in which they're offered organizing principle? Does it make sense? I mean, forever we've been talking about, you know, that the South is different. And here the story is, well, the West is different because they're really polarizing at a higher rate. But are Western politics kind of a singular thing? I mean, is that, does it make, should we, when, you, when you're running regressions in the future, are we going to start including, you know, a mindless dummy variable for the West now going forward because somehow it's different? They used to do that for the South. I mean, that was the, yeah, most, I know. That was the standard thing. You, you That's know, what I'm, you yeah. say, of course, following convention, we drop the South or we control for the South or something. Yes, I agree. If I had to tell a story, 
if I like what what explains a lot of this variation? I mean, we've talked about this already. The, the between district variation matters a lot, but a story I would tell is something like if there is a place in the state that's fairly partisan one way or the other, that place is predictably electing the same party. That's where the power base of the state is going to of that party in the state is going to come from, and that's the that's the the base those people are going to care about, and so even in a pretty liberal state like, you know, like California or, you know, in a state where, you know, you could pick, you know, Illinois is another pretty democratic state. There's going to be places where the Republicans in those states say, these are our places. If the, if, if the Republicans emerging from those places are pretty conservative, you're going to have, you're going to have kind of, uh, you're going to have extremists that get elected. Rhode Island is a pretty clear exception in that there's no obvious power base for Republicans in Rhode Island. You might say, you might even say, suppose you are a Republican who's trying to run in Los Angeles and you try to appeal to the state party and you say, hey, like, can I get a little support over here? Like, I'm trying to be, and they're like, we don't care about you. We're extreme conservatives and we don't care if you win or lose because we're not really trying to get control of the chamber. We're just trying to do our thing and be happy. But there's no, there's nothing like that in Rhode Island. That if you are one of those moderate Republicans in Rhode Island, the only, you know, the only way you can win is being moderate. And there's no, there's no Republican power base that's based in the farming part of Rhode Island that says, no, we don't care about you, we're not going to support you. And the Democrats don't really have that. Because even in a pretty, you know, even in a pretty conservative state, there's going to be a city that's a pretty solidly Democratic place. And so the Democrats, there's no equivalent of the Republicans in Rhode Island. Anyway, I don't I mean... We'll work on. Oh, I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work on refining that. That's, 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 that's the best but, thing to do. Maybe explaining back, some of this variation. That, you're doing two things. You're saying that at the state level, if I if I hear you right, at the state level, parties function in different ways in how what kind how, how they're able to discipline who runs for office. Right. One and two, you're pushing back against the notion that moderation is always an electoral benefit that in some places it suggests that running as an extremist doesn't come at a, at a cost. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? I'm suggesting that there's not exactly that last part. It might be the case that moderation would benefit almost everybody, that they would win more votes. But if you're in a pretty partisan place to begin with, it doesn't matter very much. And you just enjoy being an extremist. So those California Republicans, they are pretty safe as it is. Maybe they'd get more votes if they moderated more, but it doesn't matter. They can continue to be pretty extreme Republicans. They're going to win their seats. They're happy with that. They know they're not going to win the majority of the legislature, but they don't really care. They'd rather do their thing. Yeah, so you're, you're going back to the story of uh, district across district heterogeneity in a sense. That in California, there's a lot of heterogeneity and there are very conservative districts. And sure, I'm never going to have uh, real power in the legislature, but at least I'm going to be in the legislature if I run as a very conservative person from those districts. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm pushing one step further and saying, that's why you don't see any moderate Republicans even running for state legislature in the liberal places of California, because there's also some party leadership that controls resources. They decide which candidates to support, and they say, we don't really care about supporting those moderates in other places. Sure. Maybe that would be good for our party, but but we don't care. We would rather have preserve ideological purity within our state party caucus. And there's nobody in Rhode Island that gets to make that argument, but there is somebody in California and New Hampshire. And so you get these, you, there's no powerful base of like extremist Republicans who say, we're happy doing our thing and winning our two seats in Rhode Island, but they are doing that in other states. 
And that's why you get this polarization. You get these leaders who essentially, they want to control their little domains. They're happy. They're happy controlling those domains. They're happy pleasing their little base and doing the stuff they want. And, and I don't know. I don't know. Who knows what motivates that? But they're crazy people. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the implications of this finding for policymaking? So like when we think about polarization in national politics, we think about gridlock. We tend to have divided governments. We have the filibuster in the Senate. So if if the parties are very polarized, nothing's going to get done. And I, I don't know whether that's really uh, what's happening, but most of the action in Congress that we are having is actually using some strange uh, tactics. And, and there is there seem to be really gridlock on uh, major issues. But if you think about state legislatures, they have different institutions. And uh, as, as the paper notices, a lot of times voters actually elect unified governments for various reasons. So then those checks and balances uh, go away. Um, and then polarization will have a different effect. We'll have an effect of, of policy change, uh, a drastic policy change in one direction. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there are radically different implications. The rising levels of polarization that we see at the state level versus the national level. And at the state level, there are going to be some states that are solidly liberal or solidly conservative. And in those states, these rising levels of polarization point towards having more extreme policy reliably year after year and maybe even more extreme relative to what the preferences are of voters. And But then in those competitive states that could break left or break right as a function of who happens to win one particular election, here the story is, is that you're going to see massive policy change and, and possibly an overcorrection relative to whatever change in preferences is being express, expressed at the, ballot, at the ballot box. And so it's not a story of things being gummed up at the state level. It's a story of hyper-responsiveness and possibly sort of extreme policymaking. There's a, there's, a, there's, an, there's a little caveat to that, which is, I, I agree with that. I think we do see that in state legislatures. We see pretty partisan states just essentially run by one party, and they implement the crazy extreme things that presumably members of Congress would implement if they didn't have to deal with the pesky other party. But an interesting caveat is that I think the voters see this, and even often, you know, often even in pretty democratic states like Illinois and Massachusetts and so forth, they end up electing a Republican governor and vice versa in Republican states, because they say, we're not happy with this, and we maybe we'd rather have gridlock than have one party just run away with everything. And so in, in Illinois, we essentially have the state legislature is always run by the Democrats, or this has been for a very long time. And we sometimes get a Republican governor where we get total gridlock, like, and it's bad, it's like shutdown of government, like uh, no, no budget for, for more than a year. And then sometimes we have the state legislature just do exactly what the Democratic leaders want to do. And it seems like those are the two choices you get as an Illinois voter, which, are, which isn't great. But, but the, fact that, the fact that Illinois voters are willing to sometimes vote for a Republican governor is probably a sign that they're not that happy with that situation. This makes me think about um, a, a paper that we just uh, discussed in our department on the, uh, this, this literature in economics where you have shocks to uh, the economy, to your industry, the wages go down, and there's this big puzzle, why is it that people don't move to other places where you don't have this shock to your industry? And, and here, in a sense, we are painting this picture of now we're going to have states with very different policies, not only because some will be Republican, some will be Democrat, the policies will be really 
to the extreme on the, in, in either direction, which, um, you know, is, is going to affect people's lives. If you think about abortion, this is very important, or education. And, and then there's this question, like, is this good? And I think like a standard theory would say, oh, it's good because now people can go and choose. If I really dislike uh, restrictions on abortions, I'm going to go to a state that doesn't have them. And and in a sense, our preferences seem to be correlated. So there's going to be a state that's more liberal on other dimensions, and I'm going to enjoy that. Uh, but, but then someone may say, well people are not so mobile and there's a puzzle why they're not mobile, but they're not mobile and they're going to be stuck in those uh, states where they see across the border, there's, there's something much better and they could have it in principle and they see, you know, what are the consequences of this other policy that they like more. And nevertheless, they are stuck with this uh, very bad policy. And, and I wonder what the consequences of all that are for, you know, the society's welfare. <laughs> well, I think the, I mean, you're absolutely right that, not everybody's equally mobile and some people aren't mobile at all. But if we play out the story that's laid out in this paper, the differences across states are likely to become greater and greater. And therefore the pull for people who are not content where they're currently sitting will become stronger. When And, and, and maybe, I don't know, you could tell a story that, that maybe that's a good thing that people can, I have to deal with, I'm getting... I'm a Democrat, I've got to put up with, and I'm unhappy in this really conservative state, that then I can go off to another democratic state and be made more whole. Be, I'll be happier. But then I'm going to be putting up with the, you know, with the extreme liberals in that other state, right? There's not, and, 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 and moderation is no longer on offer. That's one problem. Another problem is that when you think about not the provision of policy goods, but like protection of basic rights, should those things vary across state? Maybe, maybe not. And then there are some issues where the gridlock at the national level then drops down to the state level. And then you have radical variation in what's happening at the state level it can be problematic in terms of policy itself. And the obvious example on this front has to do with like immigration policy. The idea that we would have different states, you know, making up their own immigration policy because that because of the dysfunction at the national level, they can't make any headway on the problem. And that the differences across states only become more accentuated because of this polarization. That would be problematic too. So I don't know. Mostly I see, I see trouble um, coming from, from these trends. What do you, what about you guys? Do you, or do you say, ah, people can choose where they want to be and, and the choices are clear and that's all to the good. No, no, this is bad. This is bad. <laughs> um, it's bad. It's just bad in the sense that, like, no, I think nobody agrees that that, that um, the two policy options should only be like the far left and the far far right policy options, and that's not where most of the voters are, and that also doesn't seem like a good recipe for uh, for you know accountability and so forth for selecting politicians based on their competence and so forth. There's there's a lot that's that's bad. So is that my bottom line? My bottom line is. Uh, is this is a good paper, and I'm glad they're doing this. I'm glad they collected all this data. I'm glad they're doing this. Um, they're pointing to, to some concerning trends that are not just at the national level, but at the state level. Um, they're, they're providing some data that's going to be useful for figuring out what kinds of things do drive more or less polarization. But the, the trend itself seems like a genuinely concerning one. And, and it seems like almost no state has, 
has figured out a way to avoid this, except for maybe those few, those few slight exceptions that we talked about. Viola, what's your bottom line? I'm glad we know that this polarization is happening basically everywhere in the United States. Um, and I'm puzzled. Um, so I think this question, uh, this paper is really adding to my um, data set. <laughs> but um, I think it, um, it, uh, it raises a lot of questions that uh, I don't know how to answer. I agree. I, I too am puzzled. I think there are lots of potential explanations for why we're seeing this overall rise in polarization and to the extent that there are differences across states to what we want to attribute those differences. Um, and I suppose my bottom line here is, is that Boris and Nolan have done the field a great service by producing these data. And there are a lot more papers to be written that what this paper on offer does is points towards a lot of variation um, that now calls out for explanation. And I hope others enter the space and try to make sense of it. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. <laughs>